folks, and welcome to the second episode of Couples Kissing in the Hallways and Other Mild Irritations. This week, Mr. Hare has asked that we look at the scientific method, the thing we learn about every year in every science class from 6th grade, maybe 5th, I'm not really sure, until now. And of course, your standard tenets of the scientific method are question, hypothesize, experiment, data, analyze, and communicate. But I'm sure that since you're all in high school, I'd presume, or older actually, that you'd already know this. As you may have figured out by the sound of my voice and the occasional coughing, I guess, I'm a little bit under the weather. But back to the scientific method. We use this every day in our lives. Little things, big things. Some people use this to figure out how to make, I don't know, vegan beef, I guess, or extract natural gas in a more efficient and non-environmentally destructive way. But for us that don't have access to anything that's not a backpack or a laptop, we have to find other, a little bit more creative ways to use a scientific method, such as having to aim the water spout when you forget to bring a water bottle to marching band. Now, to provide some context, practices on Tuesdays and Thursdays happen outside on the practice field behind the main field uh, by the middle school. Now, there are water coolers because, of course, we're standing outside in what's... 80 to 90 degree weather for about three hours so of course one single water bottle is not going to cut it so the managers the people who uh, set up the podium the cooler and all the good stuff they pour some water into a big cooler and they hoist it onto the podium for us to drink from now the problem is I am not particularly tall so my mouth cannot reach the fountain seeing as how there's a bit of a gap maybe like 10 inches between my mouth and that spout but of course I've forgotten to bring a water bottle now usually what you would do is you would just stick the neck of the bottle around that spout and of course there'd be a 0% possibility that you'd spill any water on yourself but of course being the idiot I am I forgot it so this is the question where do I put my mouth in order not to spray myself with water and look like an idiot. Now, there aren't exactly any ways to measure how far your mouth is from that water spout with just your arms and legs. I mean, I guess there is, but there's no real definite sureness to it, if that's that's redundant. But uh, regardless, there's no way to know for sure where to put your mouth so that you don't get splashed. That brings us to our hypothesis, which is... If we position our mouths, well, my mouth actually, say about a foot forward from that spout, the forward momentum of the water gushing out of the spout will hopefully just land in my mouth and not splash all over my shirt. Now, here comes the experiment. Um, well, we technically just set up the method, actually, which is just position, positioning yourself around the spout and hoping that it doesn't splash all over your shirt. Now, to put this into practice, I'd stand under there, 
I'd press the little knob on top of the spout and my shirt would be absolutely soaked. Of course, this is how experiments go. They're not always going to be perfect. They're not always going to give you the, the results you want or the results you expect. But all you can do is you keep doing it until you find something that works. You go back and you reformulate your hypothesis so that now it's if I stand about half a foot closer to the spout than I was previously, I won't get splashed. This process repeats itself until you eventually figure out where it is that your mouth fits underneath the spout. For me, this process usually takes a little while, so more than just my shirt is soaked by the time I've found the right place to put my mouth. And by then, it's usually back to get set onto the field, so I've only had maybe a sip of water by then. But anyway, this is the data. This is the data portion where we figure out how the experiment was and we take a look at the data to create implications and conclusions. And the conclusion from the first trial is that if you stand a foot away from the spout, you're going to get splashed. So this is done over and over again until your final conclusion is if you stand about yay away from that there spout, you won't get splashed. The most important part of any scientific experiment is the communication part of it. Because what's the point of finding things out if you never tell anyone? You could know all the world's knowledge and know how to build sentient robots and all that good stuff. But if you never tell anyone how to use it, then there's no point. You're, you're, you're stupid. You can't do anything with it. All you've you've done all this cool and crazy stuff, but no one believes you because you haven't communicated it to the world, and that's where the communication in this particular experiment comes in. I have miscalculated where the spout will squirt out all the water, and now my shirt is soaked. That in itself is a form of communication, but there's also a verbal aspect to it. You can't just have visual visual communication without the verbal communication. So you, I go over to all my friendos there, and I tell them, "Oh, oh no, I've soaked my shirt underneath the spout," and they've all laughed at me. But in all seriousness, this is a form of communication, and this is how it's going to be sometimes when you do something stupid and you need to communicate the results. Some experiments will be like this. Some experiments will yield something actually productive to society, and won't be so, I guess, small. But the this is just one example of how the scientific method is used in our daily lives. There's other ways to go around it. There's actual class. There's other small minute things like dealing with interpersonal relationships. But all in all, the scientific method it is actually kind of important. I hate to admit because I'm sick of hearing it in all my science classes, but uh, that's, just, that's just the way it goes. The last time I've ever had to do anything actually useful with the scientific method was when I had to teach myself how to use FreeCAD and Tinkercad. Well, not really. Tinkercad, they had a t little tutorial. But FreeCAD, FreeCAD was difficult, alright? Even though there were like YouTube videos of it online, that was difficult. It was rated intermediate on the best free CAD softwares, but it, it did not feel like an intermediate. That, that was difficult. That was a hard time in my life. A hard, hard three hours spent trying to learn how to use FreeCAD. But anyway, there's the question of how do you use FreeCAD? So from here, I 
pulled up a hypothesis, which was probably this square tool makes a square. And I experimented by clicking on this here square tool and seeing if it would make a square. It didn't, it didn't. That's not how the software worked. You had to use a whole different workbench. But either way, that experiment showed me that I had to reformulate my hypothesis to find out how to use the square tool. Now really, this is more of an engineering design process sort of thing, and less so the scientific method, but they're kind of kind of similar, so I'm just going to keep sticking with it. Anyway, eventually, eventually I made my way to the Sketcher workbench, and I created a body, I created a sketch, and I used the square tool to make a square. And finally, I padded it out to make a cube, and that was a good hard day's work. And I communicated to my dad by saying, I can I can try using a CAD software now. I can design things that are basic shapes. Super cool. A more successful attempt to teach myself how to use a CAD software was actually with the sword in Mr. Hare's engineering class. There are tutorials on Tinkercad, mind you, but there is no tutorial on how to make a 150cm length sword. So, of course, me and Gage had to design it and build it ourselves. Well, we haven't printed it yet, but it will it will be printed and it will be cool. Anyway, the design portion and putting it together in Tinkercad was a really learn by experimentation process. Because we had to make sure that each part was aligned, make sure that these little IKEA dowels would actually fit. And Mr. Hare suggested that plastic rubbing on plastic was not always uh, gonna work out so well. So we had to resize the cylinder at the base of the sword blade. Now in regards to the dowels, Mr. Hare, I know you said that uh, plastic rubbing on plastic isn't that good, but I don't think I'll be planning on removing said dowels from the blade pieces. So as far as I'm concerned, they're just gonna get stuck in there forever. And that's, that's how it's gonna be. One way street here, boys. As for the penultimate segment of my podcast, Mr. Hare asks if you had unlimited resources and you could solve one scientific or medical problem in the world, what would it be? Originally, I'd said dementia because you lose yourself and it's kind of sad. And to me, it's a fate worse than death because at least when you die of cancer or some other terminal disease, you'll at least have a sense of self and be able to go out with a sense of pride. But if you have dementia, which leads to Alzheimer's, you have all that pride stripped from you and you're basically a baby. You're new. You can't you can't think. I mean, you can think, but whatever thoughts you have are instantly jumbled into your brain and it's kind of sad as a sentient being to be reduced to that sort of state. That's what I said I was gonna do originally. And since I've elaborated on that, I'd also like to explain that I changed my outline. I want to work on sentient robots, like I mentioned earlier. Not because that's of any particular use to the world, but because it's cool. Robots that can think for themselves, that's, that's pretty cool. Of course, there'd be set limitations on them so they wouldn't overthrow humanity and things like that. Which actually would make the process harder. Because if you make them purely rational beings, then for one, they'd overtake humanity and destroy us all. But that's irrelevant. But so to solve that problem, to prevent a robotic children 
for massacring us, we'd have to make them irrational, just like us. That's even more difficult, because irrational things don't make sense. That's the, that's, that's the point. It literally means that. So, I think this great challenge of creating irrationally-minded robots would be something I'd like to do with unlimited amount of resources. I'm assuming you mean time, too, because uh, this isn't being done anytime soon. But I guess neither is the d dementia-Alzheimer's thing. Speaking of dementia and Alzheimer's and forgetting things that you said literally five seconds ago, I hope no one forgot about our podcast's special segment, which is its namesake, Couples Kissing in the Hallways and Other Mild Irritations. For this week, we have people who stop suddenly in the hallways, regardless of its student, teacher, six-year-old child, I don't care. This hallway is already congested, and there's like, I don't know, nine people per square foot. So when you stop in the middle of this moving hallway, you cause a collision. And then there's a like a miniature traffic jam. Now I finally understand what my parents have to go through when they commute on I-66 to work. Because this is exactly what happens in our school hallways when people stop in the hallways to chat. Or even worse, stop in the hallways to make out. Because not only are you blocking traffic, but you are offending my public sensibilities. This is, this is a learning environment. The worst part is when the flow of traffic is going the other way, but the way you're going has someone stuck. So now you could either choose to ram into the people going the other way just to get around these fools, or you could stand there and wait for them to disperse. You could say there's a third option, which is tell them to bugger off and move. But as you see, that might be considered rude. The last thing I want to happen to me on my way to Spanish 3 from Mr. Hare's class is to get beaten up in the hallway and to have that video posted on Snapchat for everyone in the school to talk about for the next three years. That would be an unfortunate experience. So, as you can see, there's nothing else to do but suck it up. But I'm just using this podcast event anyways, not that I'm actually solving any problems by telling imaginary people standing around in the hallways while traffic is moving to bugger off. But that's just my take on it. And with that, that concludes episode 2 of Couples Kissing in the Hallways and Other Mild Irritations. I hope you've enjoyed listening, everyone, and have a nice night. See you next week.